Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Baptist Church's podcast. For more information about the church, please visit our website at www.emmanuelmanning.com. Thanks and enjoy the sermon. Now this morning we're going to cover, actually, Revelation 14, 17 through 16, but I'm only going to read Revelation 14, 17 through chapter 15. And as I said before, kind of as a joke, next week is Mother's Day. And so Revelation 17, which is about the great prostitute, would not make a good Mother's Day sermon. Uh, and so we'll, we'll be out of Revelation next week. Uh, and uh, we'll cover the great prostitute on a day that's not Mother's Day. So follow along as I read Revelation 14, 17 through the end of chapter 15. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put your sickle in and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, uh, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hand. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Last week we said that one of the central themes of the Bible is this. God's glory in salvation through judgment. And what we mean by that, God's glory in salvation through judgment, is this. Is that throughout the scripture, in various acts, God is glorified by saving his people as he judges his enemies. In one sort of act, at various places throughout the Bible, you'll see a scene where God is judging his enemies, and through that judgment saving his people, and in both being glorified. That, that is perhaps 
the theme of the Bible. Certainly God's glory is the theme of the Bible. But the how of it we often don't consider. And if you read all of the scriptures and let all of them speak, I think it is fair to say that the way that God is glorified is by judging his enemies and saving his people. And last week, we sort of turned the final corner in Revelation. Because after the judgment of the seven seals and after the judgment of the seven trumpets, uh, there's this interlude where it says, all right, time is up. It's time for the final wrath of God to begin. And that's what we see being discussed here in chapters 14, 15, and 16. And when it says there that the wrath of God is finished in chapter 15, uh, verse 1, it doesn't mean that God's wrath is finished for all time. It means as far as the narrative of the book of Revelation, the wrath of God is coming to an end. And we've been in Revelation for a long time, so let me review for some of you the perspective from which I am looking at the book of Revelation. I think that the revelation is uh, a vision, a prophecy that John had describing the judgment that was going to come upon the people of Israel for their rebellion against God and their rejection of Jesus and that the judgments that are described here are overwhelmingly fulfilled in the destruction of Israel and Jerusalem and the temple in the year A.D. 70. In other words, as I look at the book of Revelation, what I see is that this is not something that's describing the future, even though it says some things about the future. It's not describing the whole of church history. Rather, it's describing something that has already occurred. And so that as we look at the book of Revelation, we're to see the scope of God's judgment, which still is to come in the final judgment at the end of the world, but that this is describing what God did to his people for rejecting his son, Jesus. This is what's described in Matthew 24 and in Mark 13 and in Luke 21 in Jesus' Olivet Discourse, where Jesus says, within one generation, all of these wicked things that I'm talking about are going to come true. And I've tried to show you throughout the book of Revelation that this book just makes more sense when you read it as having already been accomplished in the first century after Jesus' resurrection. That Jesus has been declared Lord, and then what John says in the beginning and in the end of Revelation, that this is describing things that must quickly take place. It quickly took place. And we have a lot to learn from this book because in seeing what God did, we learn about who our God is. And so last week we looked at the way that God was going to save his people. And that is by pulling out this 144,000, which I think represents the entire church, but is describing specifically those Christians that were in Jerusalem who fled out of Jerusalem when they saw all the things that Jesus had predicted coming true. The Romans were surrounding, the vultures were circling, and so they got out, and God saved his church by pulling the seed of the church out before the judgment came against his people because they had fully and finally violated the covenant they made with him under Moses. Now what this does is this puts us in spending a lot of weeks at looking at God's wrath. And we would rather live in a world without wrath, wouldn't we? 
In fact, a substantial part of mainstream Western Christianity has imagined just that. And it reached its head in the mid-20th century uh, in some of the movements of ultra-liberalism. And there was a theologian, H. Richard Niebuhr, the brother of Reinhold Niebuhr, for all of you theology nerds who know who the Niebuhrs are. And most of you have no idea who the Niebuhrs are. But uh, Richard Niebuhr at one time described ultra-liberal Christianity this way. They want a God without wrath to bring men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. Doesn't it describe a lot? If you look across the landscape of Christianity in America today, you'll see a God without wrath bringing men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. In other words, the most meaningful thing about Jesus in our day is that he lives to meet your needs, not that he died for your sin. That the greatest thing we could be concerned about as Christians is that in your marriage you have a great sex life instead of, as believers, we're heralding the coming judgment of God and the salvation that he has afforded men and women and children in Jesus. We don't like wrath. None of us do. I don't. But the problem is, the Bible presents in the Old Testament and the New a God who is holy and who hates sin and will judge it. And that the, the offer that we bring to men and women in this world and the thing that we should be heralding throughout this world is that you can be saved from the wrath of God by the love of God that sent the Son of God to bear the wrath of God in your place. One of the reasons we don't like the wrath of God is because we have parents with anger problems, right? Or we have anger problems. And so when we think about God's wrath, we don't think about a just and settled and right reaction to sin. We think about one who flies off the handle. Or we think about maybe a parent or someone significant in our life who only showed anger and never in right proportion and never with attending love. You didn't get the sense that the anger came fundamentally from the fact that they loved you. Rather, the anger came from the fact that fundamentally you annoyed them. And what we have to do as Christians is we actually have to let the Bible speak to us in a deeper way than our intuitions and our experiences. And I'm not going to pretend that's easy. That when you think that God's wrath means what you have experienced, or that when you think that God's wrath means what you think is true, that you have to let the Bible rewrite your software rather than you trying to rewrite it. Amen? And J.I. Packer summarizes God's wrath this way. It's never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ennoble thing that human anger so often is. Instead, it is a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. And so as we kind of turn the corner in Revelation 14, what we see is that God has now saved his people and it's time for him to give full vent to his wrath against his covenant people Israel because of their idolatry and adultery and rejection of Jesus. We saw in the seals that a third of the land was destroyed. In the trumpet judgments, we saw a half 
And what we said that was is God was intensifying the threats as he got closer to the execution of them. And as we look at the seven bowls, there are no breaks. There is no more time. These bowls are the way that God's wrath is finished. And so today, in just a few minutes, what I want to do is talk about, again, what's going on here and what we can learn from it. Because there's a lot of things that if you're not a good Bible reader, you'll miss. And and it's my job to point those out so that you can get a sense of what's being said to us through this prophecy. What you'll see as we look, and we'll get into this in just a second. What you'll see is that this is anything but unrestrained, uncontrollable anger. What you'll see is that this is thoughtful and just reaction to sin thoughtful and just reaction to sin. So the first thing I want us to see, and I point this out all the time because this is a paradigm shift. This is a new way for most of us to think about this, even though it has a long and old history in the church. Just to remind you all, this doesn't mean that it's right or wrong, but just to say that the way that most of us think about the book of Revelation, that is that it's mostly future and that there's going to be a rapture and that there's a seven-year tribulation, This doesn't make it wrong. I just wanted to point out to you that that way of looking at the book is only about 180 years old. That for far longer, people have looked at the book in a different way and I think in a better way. And one of the ways that people have looked at this book is that this is a judgment against Israel. As a matter of fact, it says in chapter 1 that Jesus is coming against those who pierced him. And, And the tribes of the land will mourn. And one of the things I want you to see as you look through this, is this word earth. In our section today, verses 17 through the end of chapter 14, that word earth appears three or four times. Now, uh, Earth Day was recently occurred, right? And Buzz, thank you, and Buzz Aldrin, uh, who was on the moon, and if you're a flat earther who denies they went to the moon, come on, you're in the wrong place. All right, we like truth here, okay? And Buzz Aldrin, took a a picture when he was in orbit around the moon of of what was called the earth rise. And we began to see pictures of the earth as a blue globe in space, right? And so what happened at that point is we now have a picture when we say the word earth. And that picture is a ball floating in space. Now, before the Renaissance, did we have much of an idea that that's what it was? So when you hear the word earth in the Bible you probably need to have another image come to mind, not of a blue ball floating in space. Rather, another way you can translate this term is not earth, but land. And when God made his covenant with Israel back in the Old Testament, the most significant piece of that covenant was the what? The land. The land stood as like a spiritual thermometer. If you're doing well, the land is blessed. If you're not doing well, the land is cursed. And what I want you to see is this word earth, which could be translated land, probably was heard by these people as the land, that is the land of Israel. And so God is going to, through this angel, take this sickle and he is going to harvest from the land. So let's talk about this. This judgment, what are we looking at? Firstly, this. This judgment is, again, Israel being judged. Why do I say that? Well, not only because land appears three or four times in this section, but also just because some of the pictures. For instance, in verses 17 to the end of chapter 14, what are being, what's being harvested? 
grapes. All right? That means that God's entering into a vineyard and he's starting to harvest grapes. Uh, He's bringing about the vintage. So when we think about grapes and a vine, is there a people in the Old Testament who are regularly put under the image of a vine? People of Israel, Isaiah 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines, built a watchtower in the midst of it, hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded only wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judea, uh, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Isaiah does it. Ezekiel does it. Jeremiah does it. Throughout the Old Testament, the picture of the people of Israel is God's vine, his vineyard. And habitually, instead of giving him the grapes that he wanted, it yielded wild grapes. And so when it says here that the final judgment is coming and the picture of a sickle going after a vineyard, this has to be the people of Israel. Another picture is verse 20, where it says, And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. High as a horse's bridle was just a way of talking about a bloody mess. Throughout the ancient Near East, when they talked about a bloody mess everywhere, they said the, the blood flowed as high as a horse's bridle. That is not to be taken literally. It just means there's just devastation everywhere. And how far does this devastation go? It says, it gives you a measurement. What's the measurement? 1,600 stadia. Some translations translate it 200 miles. That's kind of unfortunate because you missed the point. I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to give an educated guess. How long do you think the land of Israel was? 1,660 stadia. And so that's the picture here, that God... So so this is not God judging the nations who knew nothing of him. This is God judging his people who entered into a covenant with him and knew that if you did well, this is what happened. And if you went after idols and rejected me, this is what would happen. These are not uneducated people who are suffering the wrath of God. These are people who were in covenant with him. This is talking about Israel. The second thing I want us to notice about this judgment is how ironic it is. And I don't mean ironic in a funny way. I mean ironic in a very sad way. We've pointed this out before, but it's worth seeing again. In chapter 15, they sing a song. Look at verse 3. And they sing the song of who? Moses, the servant of God. This is not the people of Israel singing it. This is the church that has been rescued. All of these saints who didn't take the, the number of the beast standing along the sea of glass. And they're singing a song of Moses. Now Moses sang this song when Israel was rescued from the hand of who? Pharaoh in Egypt. So Moses and the people of Israel in the Old Testament are singing this song of being released from the the oppression of the people of Egypt. And now, in a great and sad irony, Christians are singing this because they've been freed from the tyranny of who? Israel. And you'll remember in chapter 11, it said that that the city that is to be destroyed is the city called Sodom and Egypt in which their Lord was crucified. So one of the twists that happens in the New Testament is that the people of Israel, because they've rejected Jesus, 
are now treated like the Gentile enemies of God, and the church is now treated like Israel. And so we have the church now singing the song of Moses against the people of Israel. We also have in these bowls, and we've gone through the seals and the trumpets, so I'm not going to with any great detail go through the bowls. I'm just going to point out that when you see them, you see again the plagues of Egypt in them. So if you look at the bowls, you'll see things like sores come upon the people. That's going back to the plagues against Egypt. You'll see that the water becomes blood. That goes back to what? Egypt. You'll see that uh, the sun scorches. Egypt. Then you'll see that there's a plague of darkness. And then you'll see there's a plague of frogs. What is all this hearkening back to? It's hearkening back to Egypt. And then the Lord hearkens back to the history of Israel again to explain one of those verses in Revelation that all of us just kind of nod at, but none of us understand. Look at verse 16 in chapter 16. I hear a few pages turning. 16, 16. There we go. All these armies have now come over the river Euphrates. Back up in verse 12, uh, the river Euphrates dries up so that the enemies of the people of Israel can come into the land. Again, that's ironic as well because when the people wanted to enter into the land, what did the river do? Dried up. So now the river's drying up so that the enemies of Israel can come across. And then look at verse 16, chapter 16. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called what? Now, we've all heard of Armageddon, right? If I were to say, have you heard of Armageddon? Are you afraid of Armageddon? Everybody would say, oh, yeah. If I were to say to you, what is Armageddon? You'd go. He points out that it's Hebrew. Armageddon. It means this. The mountain of Megiddo. You know why that's interesting? There is no mountain of Megiddo. It doesn't exist. There's a, there's a plain called Megiddo that you hear about a lot in the Bible, and there's a mountain nearby called Mount Carmel. And so when it says the mountain of Megiddo, it seems that what John is trying to do is to bring to mind everything that happened on Megiddo and on Mount Carmel. Okay? So that's what's going on. So the question is, what happened on Mount Carmel and Megiddo? A lot. On Mount Carmel... That's where Elijah had his confrontation with the 400 prophets of Baal. And so to say Harmageddon would draw up these images of God defeating idolaters. And on Megiddo, something really terrible happened. There was a great king in Israel's history, Judah's history, named Josiah. Josiah was a good king who did something really stupid. The Lord said, don't go out and fight Egypt and Pharaoh Necho, and Josiah, who was a good king, didn't listen, and he went out and he fought Pharaoh Necho on the plains of Megiddo, and he was mortally wounded, and he died. And that was kind of like Judah's Waterloo. You know what I mean by that? Waterloo is where uh, Napoleon went out to fight one more time, and he was overwhelmed, and it signaled the end of his kingdom. When Josiah lost at Megiddo, um, Judah was basically done, and it wasn't long until they were overrun and taken into captivity. And even hundreds of years later, at the time of Ezra, 
they're still mourning that Josiah went out to Megiddo and fought. It was a huge loss in the history of Judah. And so this picture of Mount Carmel and the plains of Megiddo are to bring up this, it's a, it's a, it's a symbolic image. It's not a literal war. It's a symbolic image that draws up the fact that God is going to destroy idolaters and he's going to destroy those who don't listen to him. And the people of Israel have not listened to him. And so there's suffering plagues, the rivers that once backed up so that they could cross through and enter into the promised land in victory are now backing up so that their enemies can come in to overtake them. The battle is calling to mind all of their defeats in the Old Testament. This is not a good scene. This is a symbolic book. You need to feel the symbols. And then one of the great and terrible things that we have, look at verse 21 in chapter 16 with this seventh bowl. It says, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. One question in the Old Testament, what did you do with an adulteress? What's happening to Israel, the adulteress here? And just to show that this fits with what's going on, listen to what Josephus says as he talks about the way that Israel was destroyed in the year AD 70. Josephus, that's not Bocephus, Hank Williams. Josephus, thank you for the three of you who got the Bocephus reference. Josephus records that the Roman armies lobbed white limestones weighing exactly 100 pounds from their catapults, thus destroying the defenses of Jerusalem in what would have appeared to be a hailstorm of white rocks weighing exactly what this says they weighed. The stone, Josephus wrote this, the stone missiles weighed a talent and traveled two furlongs or more, and their impact not only on those who were hit first, but also on those behind them was enormous. At first the Jews kept watch for the stone, for it was white, and its approach was imitated to the eye by its shining surface as well as to the ear by its whizzing sound. So this is a judgment against Israel. It's an ironic judgment against Israel. And then listen to me, it's a judgment in response to the prayers of God's people. Look at chapter 14, verse 18. And another angel came out from the altar. The angel who has authority over what? And some translations say fire, but better translations of this verse say the fire. Because the, the definite article is there, the fire. Now, what angel was in charge of the fire? Well, this goes back to a couple other places in Revelation. If you go back to chapter um, 8, verses 1 to 5, listen to what it says. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw seven angels who stand before God. Seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, and flashings of lightning. So this angel that's in charge of the fire is the same angel that took fire from the throne room of God in this vision and threw it on the earth. 
this fire was mixed with incense, which was the prayers of the people. Now look back at chapter 6, verse 9. What are the prayers of the people that were offered with fire by this angel in charge of the fire? Chapter 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So in some ways, if you want to know what the book of Revelation is talking about, you can follow this prayer of this martyrs. They prayed, Lord, we've been slain because we gave testimony to your word. The angel takes these prayers from chapter 6, and in chapter 8, he mixes them with incense and fire from the altar. That incense goes up before God. Then the angel throws that fire on the earth. And finally, it's the angel in charge of the fire who calls out these seven angels with these seven bowls of wrath. In other words, and this is one of the reasons that Revelation is so hard to read because you've got to keep up with things. In other words, what's happening here in chapter 16 is a result of the prayers of the saints. Let me apply this. Number one, we have to come to terms with the fact that God is praised for judgment in the Bible. We have to, there's a couple of things I want to do as your pastor. Number one, and I really want to do this, my whole ministry is one where I want to be a warm bath for you and most of the time I'm a cold shower. I want to comfort you with the love of God. And I want you to rest in the love of God. And I want the primary motivation for your Christian life to be that you live out of the grace of God. But at the same time, God is, is a, a unity of holiness that both expresses itself in goodness towards his people and in wrath towards his enemies and the people of God throughout the Bible have sung songs glorifying him for both. And one of the things that we have to do is come to terms with all of who God is. Because if we're going to live the, all of the Christian life, then it's lived in response to all of who God is. And it's difficult for us to come to terms with the wrath of God. And here's why I think it is for some of us and sometimes for me. Because, dadgummit, I just want to get to heaven and enjoy some sin on the way. Can I get an oh me? I, at the end of the day, do I really want to be holy? Have I really been won over by the love and beauty of God? Or is my Christianity just another expression of self-love? That is, I love me. I would love me in heaven. I wouldn't like me in hell. So let's tag ourselves as a Christian so that we can go to heaven but because I also love me, I want to experience as much pleasure and not death of self on the way. So I want to get as much sin in as I can. And so when I want to have as much sin as I can and yet make it to heaven, then I don't like the wrath of God. Because God is wrathful against sinners and sin makes me feel good. Now, I'm certainly not saying that characterizes you. I don't know your heart well enough. Sometimes it characterizes me. But people who really, really love God and really, really love holiness 
and really, really stand out because by the Spirit, they're full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those kind of people mourn in a world full of sin. And so they don't just pray, Lord, thank you for your grace. They also pray, Lord, how long? Or maybe another reason that we don't like wrath is because somehow in our minds, the fact that sin is forgiven in Jesus means that sin is not that big a deal. But sin hurts people, doesn't it? And sin hurts us. And sin fractures society. And sin leads to people killing themselves. And sin leads to men in power taking advantage of weak women. And sin leads to all kinds of human trafficking. And it leads to like the rape of the planet. And it leads to murder. And it leads to all kinds. It makes everything worse. But we think it's easy. Or maybe the reason that we don't look forward to the judgment of God is because we don't suffer at all. But these Christians suffered. They believed in and sang the songs of Jesus until death. And when they died, they said, Lord, how long until you avenge our blood? And these judgments are coming from God because every single one of them comes from the throne or from heaven or from the temple. So the first application this week is you've got to come to terms with the fact that God is a jealous God full of wrath against his enemies for their sin. And you've got to let that make the grace of God more meaningful for you because the grace of God saved you from what you deserved. And it wasn't easy that your sin was covered. Jesus was slaughtered. Second, and we would all be well served, I would be well served, you would be well served, to take some time this week and just think about the way that your sin hurts people. Not to drive you into despair or to drive you into depression, because that's not a Christian response, but to drive you into appreciation for the grace of God that His grace in Jesus has covered it all. But it does serve on occasion to think about how much your sin hurts people because it'll help you repent and it'll help you be humble and low. Now, I was scared to preach this message this week. You know why? Because not too long ago, uh, a smart, quiet, Orthodox Presbyterian church young man went into a um, synagogue and did what? Shot people. And I'm worried that you guys might think that somehow me preaching this lends to that. It does not. Paul says in Romans 9 and Romans 10 that he would be separated from Christ and die for the people of Israel, the Jews. Paul says in Romans 11 that they have a hope because one day all of them who are alive at some point are going to come into Christ. But mainly what I want you to see is that when God is full of wrath, it's his prerogative and not ours. Amen? God's wrath, this is, John Piper says this, this is the great difference between Islam and Christianity. It's not that they have a God of wrath and we don't. 
We have a God who has hatred against sin. Amen? It's just that his wrath is his prerogative and not our prerogative. We don't carry it out for him. He says this, Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Rather, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. Overcome evil with good. The teaching of God's wrath isn't intended to make us angry. It's actually intended to make us more loving. Because if God is going to take out his vengeance upon his enemies, then we don't need to worry about vengeance being served. We can just love them. Here's what Piper says. Christians don't take God's prerogative and become the mediators of wrath. We die for our enemies. We don't kill them. We don't pronounce damnation on infidels. We evangelize them. We plead with them. We love them. We call them. We go to them. It's the, the teaching on the wrath of God that's not supposed to make you bitter. It's the teaching on the wrath of God that's supposed to help you to lay down your bitterness. Again, here's what Piper says. All of you have been wronged at one time or another. Most of you probably have been wronged seriously by someone who has never apologized or done anything sufficient to make it right. And one of the deep hindrances to your letting that hurt and bitterness go is the conviction, the justified conviction, that justice should be done. That the fabric of the universe will unravel if people can get away with horrible wrongs and deceive everyone. This is one of the hindrances to forgiveness and letting grudges go. We have our own sin to deal with. But this is a real hindrance. So what we have to do is not hold on to anger, not make sure that justice is done in our day and time. That's the government's job, right? But it's mostly God's job. It's the teaching of God's wrath that actually helps us to be loving towards people. What Romans 12, 19 and this teaching of Revelation says is that when you have the burden of vengeance, if you lay it down, who will pick it up? God will pick it up. It's his job. The fourth way we can apply this to ourselves is this. It's not the case, and it should not be the case, that our relationship with God is governed by fear of his wrath. But there may be some in here this morning who are tempted in one way or another to turn your back on Jesus and his word. And when people are in that particular situation, sometimes the Bible offers comfort and sometimes the Bible offers a warning. And what the Bible says in Hebrews 2 is this. We've been looking at what God did to Israel because of them renouncing the covenant they made with him. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says. Therefore, we Christians must play, pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Do you see what the author of Hebrews is saying? If this is what Israel deserved for drifting away from the Lord, what do you think we deserve if we trample underfoot the Son of God? And so, yes, your relationship with Jesus should be overwhelmingly governed by the grace of God. But one of the graces of God is to give you warnings to say, do not drift away. Don't forget to pay attention because this is, this is a fatal all-in game. If you turn away from Jesus, you're turning away from the exalted, beloved Son of God. 
and you don't want to do that. And some of us do need to hear that warning every now and then, don't we? But we always have a deeper reason than fear to turn from our sin to the Lord. And it's this. And I said this last week, that the preeminent example of God saving his people through judging his enemy was in making his son his enemy on our behalf so that we might be saved from the wrath of God. So this morning, take this to heart. Yes, we stumble in many ways. But if the trajectory of your life is that you believe in Jesus, even to the point of suffering and death, you never need take up anger and bitterness against those who have wronged you. That 